Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today, we look at why cognitive problems in middle age may signal you're more likely to have balance issues and suffer a dangerous fall later in life, and why improving your cognitive abilities early may help prevent danger later. We head to Kabul nearly eight months after the Taliban took over Afghanistan to learn more about the humanitarian situation and the challenges that aid groups are facing trying to meet growing need. We look at the reasons for the Bank of Canada raising interest rates by half a point today for the first time in more than 20 years and what impact it will have on many Canadians. But first, we head back to Manitoba to get an update on a major spring snowstorm hitting that region to find out how well the preparations have worked out so far and how much more snow could be on the way. Well, let's begin tonight, though, in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, where a major spring snowstorm continues tonight. They've been bracing for what was forecast to be one of the biggest blizzards in ages, calling for between 30 and 50 centimeters of snow with the added bonus of gusting northerly winds from 70 to 90 kilometers an hour, not just snow, but blowing snow. And it all started a little later than expected today. Well, the storm is walloping southern Manitoba and southeastern Saskatchewan. Environment Canada meteorologist Natalie Hazel says up to 80 centimetres of snow is expected in some regions in western Manitoba. All that now, although that now appears somewhat less likely than it did a little earlier. Right now, the 80 centimetres is still within the realm of possibility, but it's more likely that we'll see closer to 60 centimetres there and closer to 40 centimetres in Winnipeg. 60, 80 centimeters, really? Well, the region has come to a near complete stop. Schools are closed. That's rare. Flights canceled. Even the Jets game was called off tonight. Plows are out helping make sure emergency vehicles and public transit can still get around. So just how bad has it been and what's still to come? Let's bring back Richard Cloutier, co-host of uh, The News on Winnipeg's CJOB. He's been living through this all day. We talked about it last night. Welcome back, Richard. How are you? Hey, great to be with you. Uh, I'm well. Uh, I actually saw somebody driving a Pontiac Fiero earlier today trying to get Whoa. through the snow. Uh, <laughs> that's that's about wise. as low of a vehicle you can get as far as low to the ground. And yeah, you'd be better off on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah, struggling to get through this. Uh, we're about a third of the way in. Uh, Winnipeg proper is a different story from outside the city of Winnipeg and and open areas. A lot of this has been whipped up by those winds. And uh, we're in kind of the calm part of this now. It's essentially stopped snowing in the Winnipeg area, only to pick up in the hours ahead. So depending on what neighborhood you're in in Winnipeg, you're looking anywhere between 10 and 15 to 17 centimeters of snow so far, but with the bulk of it, uh, still to come overnight and into tomorrow. Um, parts of southern Manitoba have been hit a whole lot harder towards the Canada-U.S. border. Um, that's where, in some cases, they've had to bring out the snow equipment uh, to get to healthcare staff so they could uh, uh, staff up hospitals appropriately. And in some cases here in Winnipeg, because uh, staff will live in more fringe areas, uh, there are staff members staying over at hospitals, nurses, doctors, technicians as well. Uh, But uh, in the end, I have seen worse, but I have never seen the preparation that uh, we have gone through in the lead up to this, uh, really ever. Uh, We are used to reacting to snow events. In this case, 
Uh, we were very proactive in canceling stuff, canceling school, businesses closing early. And as we noted last night, um, that's kind of a different attitude in these parts uh, because we're used to weathering the storm as opposed to preparing for it and just staying home. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned this last night, and I realized this was quite a quite a thing. S- snow days for school in Winnipeg <laughs> are exceedingly rare. There was one school division in Winnipeg that decided that their kids are going to go to school today, and that created a bit of an uproar. But we haven't seen this proactive measure since 1997 in the thick of uh, the snowstorm. We had two back-to-back years of terrible snow, terrible winters, followed by floods. In 1996, uh, it was bad, but in 1997, we got walloped, and that ended up in, a, in the flood of, of last century. And uh, talking with people, and I was around for that when I was a young reporter at the time, young talk show was at the time, and talking with people, first responders who are now in positions of authority here in Winnipeg, but were doing the front lines, they say 97 was a whole lot harder uh, simply because the snow was more intense in uh, a less amount of time and they hadn't done the prep. Uh, They hadn't had the, the infrastructure in place to be able to deal with this. In Winnipeg, about four or five years ago, we went through an exercise where we do a lot of pre-planning and we make sure everything is in place. And for some uh, Manitobans, they're kind of going, well, what the heck here? We can make it through the snow. There's, there, it's kind of a sense of Manitoba pride to be able to make it through the snowstorm to get to work or to get to school or get to the mall. Whereas now people have been just, you know what, we're going to chill. We're going to stay home for a couple of days. But I have to admit that there is a change in attitude that at times people this morning were saying, come on, where's all the snow, Cluche? You promised us 40. Uh, heard 60 centimeters. Come on, bring it, bring it. And, and so you know, suddenly you're getting the blame for this and saying, no, hang on, it's still more to come. You know, you can't win, right? Uh, if you no. underprepare or you under talk about it, then people are like, well, why, why didn't we hear about all this snow coming? And if you over talk about it, if you talk about it too much, then they're like, well, where's the snow? We, you know, we could have gone to the Jets game tonight. It's fine out there. The Jets are in Florida, by the way. They play are they? in Florida. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that, right? So yeah. what? our hockey players are in Florida. And some of them were saying, hey, we'd rather be at home helping out family right now than, right. than basking in the Florida sunshine. <laughs> where did I read that the Jets' Kraken game had been canceled? Sorry, Richard, that's my bad. Yeah. So it, it's been rescheduled. Right. Till, uh, so, so what happened was I was supposed to be at the Jets game tonight, and they right. rescheduled it till May 1st. But what the Jets did, the team, and good on them, they got right. out of Dodge before the snowstorm hit to get to Florida for their Friday game. Makes sense. So, yeah. Hey, if you had that chance, you'd take it too. Yeah, because I realized a lot of flights were canceled too. So, I mean, what's yeah. tomorrow look like? Because there were a lot, obviously, a lot of precautions this time. Um, but what's what's happening for in terms of waiting for more to come? Because I gather there is more to come. Yeah, there really is more to come. It should start overnight again here. Um, a lot of businesses that weren't closed today, either uh, by business end of business day, said we're not opening on on Thursday, getting into the, the long weekend. Uh, and I'm not saying downtown is a ghost town, but it's pretty much a ghost town. 
Um, our tower at, at, at Global and CJOB Winnipeg is at Portage in Maine. And um, there were very few people in at work today. So mindful of, you know, staying home. So tomorrow will be another round of the wallop of the, the, uh, the wind and the temperature, which has been hovering around zero today, is going to go down into the minuses and it's going to be bone chilling cold. And that's where we're going to start to see the snow accumulations. It's going to recede again on Friday, but we're supposed to get another round of this. Not so much, but more snow on Sunday. And we're going to have some prolonged cold temperatures. So the melt may be on by the end of next week, but that's really about it. Uh, another round of winter, maybe two. I don't, I don't need to remind you that it's mid-April. <laughs> I mean, I know you're more used no. to this, than, but it's just been, I mean, and you've had a long, tough winter. I know yeah. that's been talked about a lot as well. So this can't be welcome. It's not welcome, but also, you know, you think about it in the, in the conversations that you have on your show about the big picture and about climate change. And one wonders um, just, you know, the weather extremes that we have seen, um, you know, summers way hotter than they should be in winters where you see the, the, the variety of, of weather. And again, you know, you look uh, 400 kilometers to the south here, you see the, 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 the temperatures, the tornadoes in, at this time of year in the U.S. Midwest. And then you come up this way and you see all the snow. Yeah, we're used to getting some snow in April. March, April can be the worst months. You're ra- rarely clear until the end of May as far as any snow uh, whatsoever. But this has been probably my toughest winter um, in all my years, given uh, COVID lockdowns. And we had uh, some really nice weather in parts of March where we're saying, yeah, finally, we're going to get out of this. And then, boom, um, we've been, again, you know, whacked in the knees over this one. So we're looking forward to, to spring but like anything else, we're hardy Manitobans. We can take this. A part of us are going, you know what? I just wish it was like the good old days while in the middle of a snowstorm, we'd go out and, and kind of be with our Jeeps, our four by fours, and get out there and really weather the elements. Uh, some people have accused us of going soft. I would say we're a whole lot smarter. Except that, that person in the Fiero, who, who you'll have to track uh, I, down, down at some point. I would love to interview that person because uh, we've had a few transit buses that had to get pushed out. I, I doubt that Fiero made it, but uh, yeah, uh, y- 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 there are instances where people have been getting stuck. But again, I, I remind people, especially our Manitoba listeners, there's that, that rural Manitoba where it can be treacherous, treacherous roads closing again. Whereas in Winnipeg proper, it seems to be a different story. Richard Cloutier, thank you once again for the update. Much appreciated. Stay warm, stay dry, and hope. I really hope it doesn't snow as much as they say it's going to snow. Yeah, me too. Be well, my friend. Falls, as I was mentioning before the break, are the, one of the most serious issues for Canadian seniors. Oftentimes, they end up in hospital. When they do end up in hospital, they end up there longer. It can take away their independence. They can end up having to leave independent living to live in care facilities. And oftentimes, or sometimes, it leads to death. It is a serious situation. We often say, oh, it's just you're getting old. People fall. Well, it's not really the case. There's all kinds of research into it. Um 
that's going on. One of the most interesting ones is in England, because in England, they did this uh, sort of cohort testing where they actually took about 5,000 people born the same week in 1947, and they followed them. And they're 75 now. They followed them through all these years um, to see what happens to them. So it gives them this huge amount of data that they can look into. So one of the areas that they've been researching is that simple cognitive tests in midlife apparently, and this is after the research they did, could predict the likelihood of falling later in life. Now, one of the most common causes of injury and death, falling later in life. Poor levels of word memory, verbal fluency, processing speed, and cognitive ability in our 50s, turns out, could be early indicators of worsening balance in later life, a condition that increases the risk of falls, injury, and death. That's according to researchers from University College London. The findings also open up this very intriguing possibility that cognitive training in midlife could actually have a positive impact on balance as we age. In other words, it may prevent us from those falls. Joining me from London is Joanna Blodgett. She's a research fellow in the Institute of Sport, Exercise and Health, and previously with the Unit of Lifelong Health and Aging at University College London. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you, Ben. So this study really set out to look at balance. Uh, I suppose we could start by saying why balance is so important because uh, falls are a huge cause of injury and death in, in, in the elderly uh, in, in both Britain and in Canada. I think falls is the big thing that comes to mind with balance. We know that uh, people who have poor balance are at higher risk of falling, but it, it extends beyond falls as well. So um, we see, we've seen evidence in the UK that people with lower balance in midlife um, they're at risk of, of higher disability, uh, at poor mobility, at, at premature mortality. So there's quite a few different um, adverse health outcomes associated with balance. So when it came to this study, you went out to find if there would be a relation between, you know, essentially, how does balance evolve over the course of one's lifetime? Yes. So um, this, the group that we looked at was a birth cohort. So the UK has a few different of these studies. Um, and it's a study of over 5,000 people born within one week of each other in 1946, so nearly 75 years old, um, and they've been followed up to 20 times throughout their life. And the real advantage of using these birth cohorts is that they're all the exact same age. So we know that any of these outcomes we're looking at, so balance is a great example, is because of whether it's experiences in their life, their biology, their genetics, but not just because somebody is older um, and therefore might have worse balance. So it, it really comes down to what um, what might be associated with uh, with their balance ability. We often think of balance as, as, or at least falls and balance, as being almost purely physical. And in this case, you went out to find whether there was a cognitive aspect to it as well. What did you discover? Yeah, so there there is this common misconception that balance is purely related to strength. So how strong you are is going to determine how good you are at balance. But we actually found that there's a really strong cognitive component. So to be able to balance, it requires our brain to integrate sensory input with motor output. So motor output is maintaining that balance, avoiding a fall. And then the sensory input, it comes from three different areas. So the first is vision, what we see. So this might be if we're walking along and we see a curb, um, we might, we can tell our brain, okay, we're going to need to maybe adapt. The second is our body's awareness of our, our muscles and our limbs in space. So even if you close your eyes and wave your arm in the air, you know it's there. You can kind of have a sense of it. It's to your left, your right, above your head, that type of thing. And then the third is the vestibular system. So this is a system in our inner ear 
um, that's main focus is, is to monitor our balance our posture and feedback to the brain. So it's these three sort of sensory inputs that feed in our brain has to integrate that and then give a, a motor response. And that's what allows, um, allows us to maintain our balance and to avoid falling. So when you went back to discover what the link might be between what you were like uh, in middle age, for instance, and what the impact of that may be by the time you hit 75 with this cohort, what did you find there? So what we found is that individuals who performed better on these cognitive tests ended up having better balance, um, balance performance. And what was novel about our study is that we didn't just look at overall cognition, overall intelligence, but we looked at different domains and we found that the strongest associations were for fluid cognitive measures and, and fluid cognition. You can think of it more as, as your brain is holding and manipulating pieces of information. So this could be a, a memory test um, or trying to use kind of strategy to, to determine um, anything. Whereas the other type of, of cognition generally refers to the crystallized, and this is knowledge you acquire over your life, whether it's through formal education or just through kind of everyday life experiences, it's more factual. Um, so what we, we found was that the better performance in tests like how many animals can you name in a minute or how well can you remember this, a word search, um, those had a much stronger association with balance. Just coming back to what I said earlier, about the brain's ability to kind of manipulate this information um, and then give a, a motor output and, and maintain that balanced position. It's fascinating only because it's something you wouldn't think of if you were a layperson to think of the idea of having stronger cognitive skills in your 50s may determine more or less your ability to navigate you know, an uneven sidewalk in your 70s. Um, what does that suggest, do you think? Yeah, that, that's a, that's definitely an, an interesting observation. Um, I think it, it comes back to this misconception um, that I mentioned at the start is that it's all physical. But when I think about aging, I think not just of the cognitive or the physical side, but it's understanding both of them um, in parallel. And it might be that there's some kind of third party underlying cause that might, you know, um, result in poor cognition or poor physical function. Um, but what I think is more likely and and what we actually see in, in this group of people we're studying is the integration and the influence of those two. So they're not two things happening in isolation. And this is why we see um, people with Alzheimer's or with dementia, um, they are at higher risk of falling than those without. Um, and for us, that really comes down to the cognitive component um, and the, the difficulties in that one area of health might have on the other. It does raise the very interesting possibility that either A, you could predict better who would struggle later in life, um, or also improve cogn you know, cognitive uh, capabilities for middle-aged people to allow them to better navigate uh, their balance later in life. It does. And um, it's challenging for us right now to make any inferences about these because this is an observational study. So we've observed these, these people. But we do see um, some evidence that cognitive training, this could be an app or things like Sudoku, um, that any type of cognitive training that works that improves your cognition also has a positive impact on the physical side, um, whether that's something like balance or mobility. Um, so that's kind of the next step, because if we see that, if it works, then it raises this whole other way to intervene. So if somebody has poor balance and we know they're at risk of falling, 
yes, maybe we want to prescribe, you know, some gyms and balance exercises, um, but improving their cognition um, or, you know, prescribing cognitive activities would absolutely be a, a, a great way to kind of complement the physical side. Because it's not just one, it's really, I think it's really important that people recognize that to, to maintain your balance, you do need to have kind of that, yes, that lower body strength, but also um, that cognitive component. One of the reasons I gather that this was important in, in an institute that studies uh, aging and lifelong health is is just how dramatic falls and balance issues are, not just for the elderly and, and their personal safety and their personal health, but also for the whole healthcare system in general. It is, I gather, a very important issue to work on. It is. And, and what I find quite interesting is this, this conception that falls start at age 65 and we don't need to worry about our health or balance or cognition until age 65 because people assume this is when aging starts but aging starts when we're born um and we see that in in these birth cohorts because we're seeing um we're seeing balance decline from earlier in life and we're seeing it decline from age 20 30 um we, we peak much earlier than we realize um and what's interesting is the, the fall risk research, we're now starting to realize, okay, there's people in their 40s that are falling, 50s that are falling. And it's not just accidental. It is related to, you know, underlying health or risk factors that we normally see in 60, 70, 80-year-olds. Um, so it's really important that we kind of shift our understanding of falls earlier, one, two, even three decades earlier, and start trying to improve our balance, improve um, or even maintain our cognition at much earlier ages. For listeners who who may not have heard this off the top, falls are the number one cause of injury-related hospitalization for Canadian seniors, specifically age 65 and older. Uh, that's according to a 2014 Public Health Agency of Canada report. How about half of those uh, re- hospitalizations resulting from a fall in the, are in the home, and it's estimated that 20 to 30% of seniors fall each year. So it's a huge number of people. Where do you take this this research next, Joanna? What, ha- what happens with it now? So... As I mentioned, it's, it's still quite a novel area. There's not a lot of people looking at balance, and, and there's certainly not a lot of people who have the data to look at, at balance across um, the life course. So we, we're investigating a few other things. Um, one of these is trying to understand direction of association. So I mentioned earlier, we have cognitive aging, we have physical aging. They don't happen you know, independent of each other. They definitely are, in, are impacting each other. So um, we're looking into trying to understand does cognition impact balance or does balance impact cognition? What's the direction of it? And, and our research um, suggests that it is the cognition that is impacting the subsequent balance. Um, so that's really where, where we're seeing the um, association emerge. Um, and then there's one more um, area of research I want to mention that's, um, that's underway, but uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be out soon. Um, and we are using another one of these birth cohort studies to look at balance in early life. Um, and try and see if balance as a child, so age 10, um, if that is almost predictive or that is consistent with how well you can balance in midlife. So at a, a younger age, around 40. Remarkable. So you could actually intervene earlier in life to try to pr- improve people's balance with the expectation that maybe, just maybe, that might have a, lo- a lifelong impact. Absolutely. And so this is a chance to, when we think about um you know, testing children, we test them a lot on, on school tests. We, 
but we don't do many tests on the physical side on the kind of coordination and balance. But um, if we see what we expect, which is that those children who are struggling with their balance, having poor performance are still having poor performance 40 years later, uh, why wait? Why wait until they're uh, 50, 60 to intervene? Why not intervene earlier? Joanna Blodgett, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Have a good night. Well, this Friday will mark eight months since Kabul fell and the rest of the country did along with it, Afghanistan, marking the end of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan under President Ashraf Ghani and the return of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan under the Taliban. Now, the World Bank today said that Afghanistan can avoid an economic collapse, but only if it receives international assistance and if the Taliban government respects human rights and, quote, sound management. The World Bank said that among donors, there's an expectation that the interim Taliban administration adheres to basic standards for the treatment of women and girls, respect for human rights and sound economic management. So eight months after the Taliban's return, how are NGOs on the ground coping, particularly those that deal with the most vulnerable, such as children? What is needed? What are the challenges? Joining me now from Kabul is Salam al-Janabi. He's responsible for advocacy and civic engagement with UNICEF Afghanistan. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you for having me. Thank you. We talked a lot going into the winter about just how tough a winter it was going to be on the humanitarian front in Afghanistan. Uh, it's April now. How tough a winter was it? And where are we now in terms of the humanitarian crisis that the country was facing? Indeed, um, we are now sort of at the tail end of, of um, this quite difficult winter. Um, and sadly, the situation for lots of families and children has actually deteriorated further i mean with the with the continued um, economic crisis afghanistan is going through the impact on children and the services that children and mother mothers need have on, has only been compounded um, we we continue seeing um, children having to work to uh, to support um, the meager incomes um, families have we continue seeing um, quite a large number of children with um, uh, acute mal malnourishment um, and um, you know the the situation with with education of course is also very concerning as schools should have started for everyone in March but sadly as everybody knows for adolescent girls it hasn't so so it is it has not been um, you know the coming of spring has not sort of brought in um, a positive new fresh start sadly a lot of families are still suffering what needs to be I mean I understand given the situation with sanctions given the situation with aid having been stopped when uh, when the Taliban mm. arrived uh, that this has created a lot of complications on the ground for organizations such as yourselves uh, what have you been trying what are the challenges that you're facing right now in trying to deliver the aid or at least deliver the help that's needed to the most vulnerable so I think um, the the issue with the situation lots of um, Afghans are facing is is that is beyond just delivering of of the uh, life saving assistance. I mean, what UNICEF and other um, uh, humanitarian organizations have been doing is to create basically this bridge that will help uh, children and families just sort of come um, survive the months where the international community sorts out the politics of it. But uh, the truth is. 
um, as the the economic crisis continues, incomes um, families are without any income. The um, the the needs are rising beyond the assistance, the, the basic humanitarian assistance. So, for example, I mean, we, we have been able to continue uh, making sure that vaccinations continue um, with the help with our many donors. We were able to pay uh, in, uh, emergency incentives for teachers, around 200,000 of them for the first two months of the year to make sure that they don't leave the profession. We were seeing teachers looking for other jobs, um, and that would be really very sad for the education system here in Afghanistan if teachers left. The same thing with the health system. Um, there has been support from us, from UNICEF and other organizations to make sure that health facilities stay open. But in parallel, we are still um, bringing education to rural communities through community-based education, um, reaching out to the rural areas with mobile health teams to make sure that families who are not able anymore to go to these health facilities, transportation is just basically expensive, is that they get um, provided with health services near them, that nutrition and food assistance is provided with UNICEF, food program that actually these things are provided to families who have almost nothing at homes. I mean, I've been, I've been to, to homes where the mom would tell me um, that she, th th there's basically a, a bag of potatoes and a bag of turnips. That's it in the kitchen. And she would be boiling some of these uh, in the evening. And that will be just that meal for the day. Um, so it's it's quite it's quite tough. What is needed really is to make sure that not only humanitarian life-saving assistance is provided, but we also to figure out how to support the systems that children and mothers need. Are you seeing a difference between, I mean, the situation I remember from my time there, the situation in Kabul obviously is very different from the situation in other parts mm. of the country. How uneven yeah. is this crisis now? Is it, is it much worse in rural areas or is it, or is it worse in the cities at this point? The, the impact would have been always more in the rural areas simply because mm -hmm. there is no, not as many services concentrated in the far rural areas and accessing health facilities, schools always becomes more difficult but also because um, income um, opportunities for, for parents are more difficult in rural areas with the drought. I mean, it's the worst drought since 40 years, so agriculture is not doing great. But frankly, what, is, what has been happening over the last couple of months is that this, the impact of the economic crisis has gone now up in all economic strata within, within the society. So even, as I told you, I mean, we, we've, we're seeing teachers having to look for jobs elsewhere. We, people have lost incomes and salaries and private sector because of the current situation. So it, the pressure is, is not anymore only on those who were um, already disadvantaged or sort of on the line of poverty, but it's going further. I mean, UNDP is expecting that 97% of the people in Afghanistan will be under the poverty line. That is quite, um, I mean, it's the whole country, basically. It's, it's, I mean, it, it's always, you know, it, it's always been a struggle, but it's shocking to hear, of course, that now even mm. those who had found themselves in a slightly more secure situation are now finding themselves in an insecure situation. Um, 
how much I was going to, I wanted to speak to you in a bit just about the impact of the war in Ukraine, because we've seen it have an impact mm. all around the world in countries. Yeah. Uh, the UN came out today, Antonio Guterres was talking about just how difficult uh, countries are struggling, countries in, in poverty are already struggling and are struggling more now. Um, yeah. I, have you seen the impact already of what's happening in Ukraine on the ground in Kabul? Um, you see the, the, we had a, a global um, donor pledging conference about three weeks ago. Um, the UN was was asking for quite a significant amount of money to support the situation, all, all of the UN agencies. Um, about 40 countries um, uh, and partners provided almost half of what was asked for, 2.4 pledged. 2.4 billion, including the, the government uh, of Canada and its people. But um, the truth is, this is, while it's, we're all very grateful that, that governments and people continue to keep the plight of children uh, here in Afghanistan in their mind, there is so much more that needs to be done. The the um, uh, and and what the World Bank came up with today, uh, what we've been always saying is is you cannot, we cannot abandon these children and mothers at this moment. There is twenty years of gains that were made for children here in Afghanistan, and they are at, at risk of being lost now. I mean, we moved from from a couple of million children in schools. Uh, 10 years ago to um, almost 9 million, uh, 40% of them girls today. And these now, their schools are at risk um, if, if support doesn't continue. And, and as, as you know, and as I'm sure many people know, Afghanistan had always been dependent a lot of, uh, on, on international aid. And this aid now is going through you know, UN agencies, UNICEF and others. They, they still need the world's attention and support. Ukraine, uh, the situation in Ukraine and, and the response that we've seen in the, in the pledging conference shows that mm -hmm. Afghanistan's children and mothers have not been forgotten by the world, which we are very grateful for. But really, we really hope that, that people continue to keeping their plight in, in their minds and, and in front of them. I'm speaking with Salam Al-Janabi. He's responsible for advocacy and civic engagement with UNICEF Afghanistan. He's speaking to me tonight from Kabul. After this, we'll talk a bit more about the school situation because, as you know, uh, schools, girls in school has always been a big uh, part of, of, of the Canadian story about Afghanistan. And I want to ask you a bit more about the challenges you're facing and whether we'll see any resolution. I know school began in March. And also just a bit more about, you know, we're heading into the spring and the summer. Uh, things might hopefully are a little bit easier, but then we have to prepare for another winter again. I want to ask you how you're ramping up for that. Uh, that's next. Salam Al-Janabi is with me this half hour. He's the communication advocacy and civic engagement uh, responsible for at UNICEF Afghanistan. He's speaking to me tonight from Kabul. We've been talking about uh, the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan, which has not uh, improved, obviously, over the last eight months. In fact, gotten much worse. 97%, it's estimated, could be living below the poverty line. Gains in so many areas that we had spent here in Canada so much time talking about, watching from afar, such as education being lost, kids being sent to work to help support their families because they have to, teachers looking for new work because they're not being paid, and a situation that's not getting uh, much better. I was, uh, Salam, as we head into the summer, is there any respite because of the summer and the spring? Is there any hope that we may see improvements uh, between now and the next winter? 
This really depends on um, the de facto authorities moving forward, but also the engagement from um, the international community with with Afghanistan. So while we are always hopeful, I mean, UNICEF will always come from a point of view of hope for future for children, but we really need to make sure that um, the international community continues to engage positively with UN agencies to support these children, and also that the de facto authorities um, do deliver on, on their promise. Because I get the sense from the way you're describing it that really no one can afford to live through another winter like the one they just lived through. I mean, frankly, I don't know. I don't know whether many of the families will be able to survive the summer. We've been talking to a lot of the families in the last couple of weeks because you know it's, it's Ramadan here, and and right. um, lots of families are fasting. And when we and when we talk to mums and fathers, and they 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 can't even figure out how how to have food on the table to break the fast, how to make sure, you know, they, they tell us that most likely in many of the communities, it will be um, tea and bread and water. And that is what you will have when you break your fast, which is heartbreaking. You know, it's a, it's, it's a month where, where people are having to even lean further into those who are generous and giving. So it's, it's um, and in the meantime, we are, of course, the drought situation has improved, which means also uh, work in agricultural areas is not going to be available for a lot of people who depend for their incomes on this. We are seeing an explosive um, measles outbreak in, in about five or six provinces in Afghanistan, and that is very worrying. Um, so so the, the summer is not going to be um sadly a moment of respite there's still a lot of children who will be fighting for their survival i mean you know that we we know that the youngest um those under five um are the most vulnerable for severe acute malnutrition and you know the diseases that that would actually put their lives at risk if they are severely malnourished We've spoken a lot. I know it got a lot of international media coverage, the idea that girls were not allowed to go back to school. Mm. I know there's pressure on the government to change that because a lot of sort of the strings attached to the humanitarian aid to some extent uh, are dependent on a respect for certain uh, human rights norms. Uh, do you see any resolution to that situation anytime soon? Um, that question really is for the de facto authorities, but right. we are, we are, we are continuing our conversations with them on this issue specifically at every level. But at the same time, there are 9 million children going to school, including girls who are going in, uh, at primary school level. So, right. so I think what is really important is to make sure that these children continue to be supported. Um, um, I, I think the best way to, make, to support girls' education is to make sure that their schools remain opening, functioning, their teachers are, are in school, so that hopefully when um, the de facto authorities make that decision sooner rather than later, the schools can open, the, can welcome uh, adolescent girls back into their classes with open arms. Parallel to that, though, we have not stopped our 
community-based education classes. And these are happening within further rural areas. Girls have not stopped coming to these classes. We continue providing these learning opportunities. We have about 5,000 of these now across Afghanistan in the remotest areas. So, so we're trying to continue that happening while we continue our conversations with the de facto authorities and the Taliban and supporting the education I, I feel this is an area where it shouldn't be um, one or the other. We need to make sure that the future of children here, gains made for children here are not lost, while also making clear that there are issues and certainly girls and women's space within societies that we continue to have to put pressure on. Salam al-Janabi. Thank you so much for shedding some light on the situation in Afghanistan. Thank you for letting our listeners know what's happening there. Clearly, there is an urgent need still uh, and a need that apparently, you know, as you said, will only grow more urgent as we head towards uh, through spring and summer into fall and winter again. Thank you so much for speaking with me tonight. Well, the Bank of Canada did something it hadn't done in more than 20 years today. It raised its benchmark interest rate by a half percentage point. The bank's governing council agreed to increase the rate to 1% rather, in part of an effort to fight inflation and signal the winding down of pandemic-related uh, essentially spending. And they say there are more rate hikes to come. Here is the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklin. That higher inflation, those higher prices, they're impacting all Canadians. We need to get uh, inflation down. Uh, the economy is strong. It can handle higher interest rates. It needs higher interest rates to bring demand uh, in balance with supply. Tiff Macklin, Bank of Canada governor there. This is the first time the bank has announced a half point hike since May of 2000. So why now and what could it mean for us? Joining me now is Trevor Toome. He's a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. Thanks for your time tonight. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, I, I think we expected this, uh, but tell me a bit about the rationale behind uh, something we hadn't seen in a long time. So we, we definitely have expected that rates would increase as we recovered from COVID and the recovery has been pretty strong both here and around the world. So Canada's labor market is basically fully back and in some ways exceeding where it was prior to the pandemic. And so normalizing monetary policy did need to happen. And we're going to see further rate increases as well, not just through the rest of this year, but potentially next year as well, until we get in the order of about 2 to 3%. And, and right now, uh, the Bank of Canada rates at 1%. What is the, the rationale then behind the Bank of Canada's, Bank of Canada's decision, or, or at least what is the aim with raising interest rates half a percentage point, something we, again, we hadn't seen in a long time? Yeah. So the Bank of Canada conducts what's called monetary policy in Canada, influencing interest rates, affects investment, and borrowing decisions of businesses and individuals. And so it's an important tool to either help increase economic growth or decrease economic growth. And, and why would you want to do the latter? Right? So right now, if you're utilizing a lot of the productive capacity in your economy, then further pressure uh, to boost economic growth by having easy uh, monetary policy can risk inflation. And so what we're seeing now is, of course, heightened inflation. I think, unfortunately for the bank, for a lot of external reasons that it has trouble influencing, like commodity prices being a big one. Uh, but getting back into uh, interest rates, 
for the Bank of Canada between two and three percent. That's kind of the neutral range for those rates that don't increase or decrease inflation risk and kind of allow the economy to persistently produce at its potential level of output without increasing inflation beyond 2%. Of course, worth reminding that these interest rates are still very low compared to what uh, history would tell us. Uh, Who, though, will feel the impact of this jump? So it does depend on, well, first, whether one is borrowing on variable rate terms or fixed rate terms. You know, if your rates are locked in for a certain period, then this doesn't mean much in the short term for you. But those with variable rate loans, of course, will see uh, borrowing costs increase, uh, especially as further rate increases occur. Uh, But on the other hand, savers will also see higher interest rates as a potential benefit, increasing incomes that can be earned from those savings. So I think like with most uh, policy issues, there are winners and losers and important pros and cons to consider. But regardless of whether one um, will benefit or not from higher interest rates, these higher rates are in part because of our strong recovery from COVID. And so it's a, getting back to normal monetary policy is a sign that our recovery has gone well. And I expect we'll be seeing more of these. Uh, there are several more rate decisions to be made during the course of 2022. Uh, how quickly do you think uh, this accelerated pace of, 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 of rate rises will be? So in order to get back to around the 2 to 3% range from where we are now, it's going to require about six more quarter point increases. So the half point that we saw today, that is pretty rare. We haven't seen this since early 2000, uh, a half a point increase in the Bank of Canada rate. And so if I were to bet, and of course, who knows, there's a lot of uncertainty out there, but if I were to bet, then I think we would see more typical quarter point increases, but several of them in a row until we're back into that neutral interest rate range next year. Importantly though, and we mustn't forget that the Bank of Canada has another tool in its toolbox beyond just these interest rate increases. It has purchased a lot of assets in what's called quantitative easing through the pandemic, accumulating hundreds of billions of dollars worth of largely government bonds, it's going to start to shrink that, which is another way of easing, uh, sorry, not easing, contracting, tightening monetary policy. And so those two policy tools, right, shrinking its balance sheet or increasing rates are substitutes for each other. And so we may see um, the bank utilizing more of shrinking its balance sheet in uh, the coming year or two. How will this impact uh, what consumers are already facing, which is rising prices uh, for stuff? Uh, And and certainly inflation is impacting wages as well uh, in in an indirect way. Uh, How will this impact sort of the individual pocketbook beyond just borrowing? So in the short term, it won't have a very large effect at all. It does take time for monetary policy to work its way through and actually affect the economy more generally. Potentially a year, year and a half is kind of the, the long lag that we're looking at. So in the, in the short term, not a lot of impacts uh, at all on prices. I think now, especially because the main driver of inflation here and in many countries around the world is energy prices. And that comes entirely because of high global oil prices. And there's really not uh, any implication on global oil prices from a Bank of Canada 
move. And so there, the exposure that we have to these unpredictable global developments like Russia's invasion of Ukraine, for example, I mean, that's, that's not something that monetary policy can influence. And so we just have to wait and see how those markets um, evolve. Because certainly what I, I'm thinking back to a couple of years ago when we were first talking about inflation, uh, at least the message coming from the Bank of Canada was that it was going to be temporary. They felt it was going to be temporary. Now, of course, events get in the way. Uh, they, yeah. Have yeah. they had to reassess where they're going with this at this point, or are they still staying the course more or less? So they are still staying the course more or less as with other central banks around the world. And so I don't interpret the moves to increase rates now as anything other than getting back to normal because the recovery from COVID has gone well and was indeed more rapid than, than most expected. The inflationary pressures, I, I agree that they're temporary and the bank still sees in their forecast release today that, that we will uh, get back to the target 2% range just because of the main drivers of inflation are energy. And currently, you know, who knows where oil prices are going to go, but many forecasters, the, the futures markets, when people today buy and sell and lock in the price of oil for delivery in the future, that does show that oil prices will gradually start to come down from their current highs. And as that happens, the inflation pressure from energy will dissipate. Then a second big factor is housing. Housing prices have been a big driver of inflation as well. And if we don't continue to see, and I can't imagine how we will continue to see 20% plus year-over-year increases in housing prices, then that factor is going to dissipate as well. And once you take those two uh pressures away, then we're right back into the kind of target range where we like to be generally. Trevor Toom, thank you so much for your insight on this. As always, uh, always fascinating to find out what you, how you read these things. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on.